Well, good morning, church. I'm Bob Waldeman, in case you don't know that, and I'm a retired pastor. I'm retired from pastoring, but not from ministry. And I am very happy to be here to fill in for Pastor Caleb, as he and the family are out uh, on vacation. Uh, and we pray, keep praying for them, that they would have a great time, and they, we, they would return refreshed in spirit. Uh, before I begin, uh, let's open in prayer. A gracious Lord and eternal Father, how we praise you. We thank you, Lord, for the love that you have lavished upon us through Jesus Christ, our blessed Savior. We thank you for his great work of redemption on our behalf, sinners that we are but beloved in Christ. And we praise you and we thank you for such grace to us. And now, Lord, we pray that by the might of your Spirit that you would move uh, in everyone's heart, give us ears to hear, Drive distractions from us, Lord, and encourage us. And, Lord, we'll certainly thank you for this all. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you turn your Bibles to <clears throat> Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. <clears throat> and it reads, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to, be ab to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Thought that was going to be the shortest sermon you ever heard, right? <laughs> if only I could win the lottery, I would truly be happy and content. Did you ever think that? Now, I'm not advocating you all run out and play the lottery, all right? But did you ever think that? I've thought that, all right? If only I could win $500 million, I would be content. Well, let's be careful what we wish for. Consider these winners. Uh, Jack Whitaker said, I wish that we had torn the ticket up. He was already a millionaire when he won a $315 million lottery in West Virginia in 2002. The then 55-year-old West Virginian construction company president claimed he went broke about four years later and lost a daughter and a granddaughter to drug overdoses which he blamed on the curse of the Powerball win. According to ABC News, my granddaughter is, he said, my granddaughter is dead because of the money. Abraham Shakespeare always told his brother, I'd have been better off broke. In 2009, he won $30 million at a lotto jackpot, and after much arguing, was murdered by his recent girlfriend. Evelyn Adams of New Jersey hit the jackpot in 85 and 86, begging 5.4 million. Fast forward 20 years, though, and she is living in a trailer completely broke. Billy Bob Harrell won 31 million on the Texas lottery and first thought his problems were over. He quit his job and gave much of his fortune to help the, the needy. Eventually, he became more and more hassled by people demanding money from him. 
having to change his number, uh, phone number a number of times. The pressure of this combined with separating from his wife was too much for him, and he was found dead by his son with a self-inflicted head wound just two years after his winning. In fact, National Endowment for Financial Education found that, quote, about 70% of people who suddenly receive a windfall of cash will lose it within a few years. Bankruptcy, divorce, addictions, suicide, and murder are also the results of winning the lottery. Now, on the other hand, there are losers. In 2008, we experienced the subprime mortgage crisis with the S&P stock dropping 57%. In 2000, we had the dot-com bubble, where NASDAQ dropped 77%. And the worst crash in history, the, two, the 1929 stock market crash, where the Dow dropped 89%. The Journal of the American Medical Association recently published research saying a big financial loss may shorten your life, a new study suggests. Middle-aged Americans who experienced a sudden Large economic blow were more likely to die during the following years than those who didn't. The heightened danger of death after a devastating loss, which researchers called wealth shock, crossed socioeconomic lines affecting people no matter how much money they had to start. So whether you win millions or lose them, both can be devastating. And perhaps that's why we need to pray the wisdom found in Proverbs 30, 8 and 9. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you, and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Socrates once said, He who is not contented with what he has would not be contented with what he would like to have. These lottery winners uh, prove that truth. Why is that, we ask? Henry Ford put his finger on it, I think, when he said, money doesn't change a person. It only unmasks them. On the other hand, the Apostle Paul declared whether living in plenty or want, he learned contentment. Whether Paul had much or had little, he knew contentment. In fact, he wrote this letter, Philippians, while under house arrest, changed to a Roman guard. And according to Acts 28.30, we learn that Paul, even though under house arrest, had to pay his own rent. Obviously, he needed to depend on others, uh, other believers. Paul was writing to the Philippian church, grateful that they had remembered him and that they had sent aid. Verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received, I have received your concern for me. Uh, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. The Philippian church had been a very gracious and generous church to Paul from the very beginning. After he left and moved to Thessalonica, we read down in this chapter, verse 16, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Apparently, there, is a, there was some sort of delay in sending Paul aid, and we're not told uh, what it was. Perhaps they, they just lost track of him and where he was. <clears throat> Paul simply speaks of them having no opportunity. But now they had renewed their friendship and support. And then in verses 11 and 12, we read, 
Now that I am, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Let me make three points about these verses, followed by three roots that feed our contentment. And the first point is this. Paul was content regardless of his circumstances. Contrast those lottery winners and their temporary luxury and losers to the life of Paul. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 11, uh, 23-28, Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in the danger from the rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Because besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Now that hardly sounds like a relaxing, peaceful, contented life. And yet Paul writes, in spite of his circumstances, he found contentment. And this clearly shows that the Christian contentment is not tied to one's circumstances. Second point is this, Paul didn't just find contentment, he learned contentment. Contentment is not a spiritual gift, but a mark of Christian maturity. As Paul noted, these things must be learned. In the Greek, we translate one word, uh, moeo, as learn the secret. The word means to be initiated in a mystery, having been taught, disciplined by experience. Contentment, therefore, is not just something that falls out of the sky, that drops down. It's not gained with a winning lottery ticket. It is carefully developed through life experience. It's an internal attitude and approach to life in spite of external circumstances. Contentment, or tekos, means self-sufficient within. Now, during Paul's time... The contemporary Stoic philosophy valued uh, the virtue of contentment and faced life with a stiff upper lip, an inner resolve, perhaps captured well in Henley's poem Invictus, with the famous last stanza that reads, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am master of my faith. I am captain of my soul. Or Simon and Garfunkel's song, I am an island, I touch no one, and no one touches me. That's Stoic philosophy. That was not Paul's secret. How did Paul learn contentment? What was the secret he wrote about? The answer brings us to the third point, and it's in verse 13. 
I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Opposed to the Stoics, I am captain of my soul. We have the Christian response found in 1 Peter 2.25. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Paul's inward sufficiency was a Christ sufficiency. This is speaking of the indwelling Christ, the abiding Christ, which enables Paul to be content whatever his outward circumstances. Contentment communicates a, that God is sufficient and that he will provide all that is necessary. Now, before unpacking just how that works, let me say a word about this famous verse uh, as to what it does not mean. This is one of those verses that's, that's so rich and profound that Christians like to pull it out of its context. I can do all things through Christ. This verse does not make you a Christian superhero. You are not able to run faster than a speeding bullet or leap buildings in a single bound. In context, it is Paul's answer uh, for him to be able to both enjoy plenty and endure want. Some translations, such as the NIV, maintain the context by writing it this way, I can do all these things through him who gives me strength. In the words, all these, all this, narrows the meaning uh, to be uh, being uh, content in either plenty or hunger, and is contextually accurate. Now, while I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me is absolutely true, if it is the will of God, of course, here in context, Paul is giving us one outstanding example of spiritual strength that he has found in Christ. Whether in plenty or hunger, Paul is content to continue to do the work to which he has been called. And continuing his mission, his calling, uh, is significant to achieving contentment regardless of the circumstances. His mission was to preach Christ, crucified, risen, and coming again. And Paul had been called by Christ himself, and he had been it was revealed to him the unsearchable riches and blessings that were his in Christ. So that in Romans 1, 14 and 15, he states, I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel. For Paul, Christ was his treasure and the gospel was his song. As long as he could share the gospel, he was content because he marveled at his new birth and the blessed hope that was his in Christ. This is echoed in 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 14, which reads, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me 
with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. As Francesco well pointed out the other Tuesday night when he was talking about what the gospel is, you need to know the darkness of sin before you can appreciate the light of salvation. And I say a hearty amen. Until we understand our fallen condition, until we grasp a biblically robust doctrine of sin, we will never experience full contentment in our Savior and in in what he saved us from. One author writes, the truth is we deserve hell and we got mercy. Instead of suffering the eternal weight of divine wrath, Jesus, God's Son, stood in our place. He drank the cup of condemnation so that we could drink the cup of blessing. God took care of our greatest problem. God took care of our greatest, greatest problem imaginable. Certainly, you can see how this would inform our understanding of contentment. When you deserve hell, anything else is a cause for celebration. Therefore, there are three aspects that flow from this that feed our contentment. First, Paul had an attitude of gratitude. He remembered his past, but he rejoiced in his present salvation. Just a few verses earlier than these, in verses six, uh, Philippians 4, 6, and 7, he stated, Do not be angry about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Paul says that in every situation we should pray and be thankful to God. And far too often we fail to be grateful for what we have. And we constantly focus on what we do not have. Which in turn feeds our discontent. In the first chapter of Romans, Paul, listing the dreadful effects of sin upon humanity, in Romans 1, verse 21, he writes, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But in their thinking, they became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. In her book, A Thousand Gifts, Anne Voskamp writes with insight, Quote, from all our beginnings, we keep reliving the garden story. Satan, he wanted more, more power, more glory. Ultimately, in his essence, Satan is an ingrate, and he sinks his venom into the heart of Eden. Satan's sin becomes the first sin of all humanity, the sin of ingratitude. Adam and Eve are simply, painfully ungrateful for what God gave. Isn't that the catalyst of all my sin? Our fall was, has always been, and always will be that we aren't satisfied in God and what we have. Only a person with an attitude of gratitude to God will be able to experience real contentment in life. And that's why Paul emphasizes again and again in his writings the importance of giving thanks. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 18. Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. 
People often ask, I wonder what God's will is for me. Well, here's part of it. Give thanks and cultivate an attitude of gratitude. In a Desiring God article, the author states, it is fitting for a creature to be in a continuous posture of gratitude towards his creator. And it is even more fitting for a redeemed rebel rebel to be in an ongoing posture of gratitude towards his redeemer. The kind of life that flows from such amazing grace is the life of continual thankfulness. And this is the kind of life with which the born-again Christian is being continually renewed, progressively being made more like Jesus. Second, in addition to having an attitude of gratitude, one must develop a trust of God's sovereignty. We say it so often, but to the degree to which we truly believe in God's sovereignty is the degree to which we will experience true contentment. Perhaps no verse so captures this concept as what Paul wrote in Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things work together for good does not mean all things are good. It's a verse easy to say when life's going well and we're being blessed. Yet it's no less true when life is hard and it's crumbling around us. It's perhaps then more than, than at any time that we walk by faith. Sometimes, eventually, we may see how God's plan plays out in our lives. A good example is Joseph in the Old Testament. You know him well, I'm sure. You remember this story. He, being the youngest son of Jacob and being less than humble, uh, became an annoyance to his brothers, so they sought to do away with him, eventually selling him. He landed in the land of Egypt. But circumstances shifted, and soon he found himself in prison in a foreign land. And it would have been easy at that point and understandable for Joseph to turn his back on God. And yet Joseph did not give up his faith in God, nor God's sovereign purpose for him, as one author notes. He also believed that all the horrible things that happened to him were orchestrated by a God of good intentions. He even grasped that all he went through was for the benefit of the very people that had wronged him so terribly. Joseph waged war on his bitterness, and his weapon was God's sovereignty. We know how the story ends. Later on, he rose to second in command in Egypt. And when his brothers finally came before him, he was ultimately able to graciously uh, forgive them. And he said in Genesis 50, 19, 21, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Sometimes we see God's plan worked out. However, many times in this life, we don't. We don't see how it works out. There are many evils that happen that will only answer to judgment. But that too is good. Ultimately showing God's justice. Jesus said in Matthew 18, 6 and 7, If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. 
Woe to the world because of these things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. Did you hear those words? Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. Sometimes the only good we can see is the ultimate justice of God. As believers in our sovereign God, we can rest content that he is in control. When we were young children and we went on that scary roller coaster and it was okay because dad was sitting next to us and we trusted him. And when that same dad turned around, he took that, remember they used to take that sewing needle and they used to come to you and dig out that splinter out of your finger. You trusted him, though it was painful. And so with God, whether I, where I experienced the wealth or poverty, health or illness, acceptance or rejection, I trust that our loving Heavenly Father has not abandoned me and that he's doing what is right and good through the experience I am experiencing. In that, we trust someone bigger is in control. And that gives us contentment. Jesus taught us in Matthew 6, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life and what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in bonds, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is so, how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown in the fire tomorrow, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we eat? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after such things. And your heavenly Father knows you have need of them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble in it. God is sovereign. No matter what you're going through, he's still in control. In addition to cultivating an attitude of gratitude and a trust in God's sovereignty, there's a third aspect of contentment. It's having hope. Paul speaks about hope in Romans 8, 23-25. Uh, not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait patiently for it. All the promises of God are ours in Christ Jesus, though some are still future. So we wait patiently for them, content to know that the, the word of the Almighty God stands sure. They will be ours. Isaiah 14, 24, The Lord Almighty has sworn, Surely as I have planned, so it will be. And as I have purposed, so it will stand. 
we have the assurances of God himself. As Pastor Caleb preached last week on perseverance and that God is the God that saves and God guarantees our salvation. Jesus said in John 6, 39, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. And such assurance imparts contentment. You know, we worry about so much about our retirement in the future, and we, <clears throat> we work so hard for it. But our retirement and glory is fixed. You don't have to worry about your 401k. <clears throat> Colossians 1, 4 and 5, we pray for you. Because we have heard of your, <coughs> excuse me, of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven, about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel. Believe it, just reflect upon the promises of God. He has promised us eternal life. No, no more tears, no more pain, no more loneliness, no more despair. He has promised us a new and resurrected, perfect and immortal body. He has promised us an inheritance with all the saints in glory. He has promised us that we will be co-heirs with Christ in glory. He promised us that we will see Christ face to face. He has promised us that we will be made like him. He has promised us that we will be in the presence of the blessed Trinity in eternal worship. Such is our hope, which means assurance awaiting us. And armed with such confidence in the promises of God engenders a patient contentment with life now. These aspects generate contentment. The contentment that Paul found, which are all rooted in his relationship with Christ, that made contentment a reality. Notice in verse 13, Paul says, or Paul doesn't say, I can do everything if I put my mind to it. He does not say, I can do everything if given half a chance. Paul says, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Only in Christ can we find true godly contentment in our lives, in him, regardless of the circumstances. Chuck Swindle wrote, the secret to Paul's contentment did not emerge from a manual on how to live Christian life or from a workshop on positive thinking. He didn't have access to a stack of self-help scrolls promising to shore up his sagging self-confidence. Paul's secret was not found in a program but in a person. Christ made the difference. No matter how adverse, he taught his servant to endure all situations, every circumstance, each difficult challenge through his power. Paul released all rights to his master, and in turn, he re released all the strength Paul needed. The stronger and the deeper our relationship with Jesus Christ, the greater our contentment will be in this life. 
when we gain a proper view of this life, often wonderful, sometimes tragic, always temporary, we gain perspective. We need to keep our eyes and thoughts focused on Christ's goodness to us. That's why Paul's encouragement to think on those things which are uh, true and right and pure and lovely. Piper writes, How could Paul sit in prison, suffering regularly from hunger and exposure, knowing he might be killed, and say, In whatever situation I am, I am content? Because Paul saw the prize. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Jesus was a treasure to Paul. What Paul saw in Jesus was what the, the man in Jesus' parable saw in the field. Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like the treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Fifteen minutes before that man saw the treasure, would he have been content to sell everything and buy the field? No way. Fifteen minutes after he saw the treasure, he was off to the auctioneer. And what was this? He saw the treasure. The secret to contentment in whatsoever is seeing the treasure that trumps all things. We need to hold lightly the things of this world. As martyred missionary Jim Elliott said so well, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now let me say a word here quickly about <clears throat> what contentment does not mean. Contentment does not mean complacent. Contentment does not negate ambition, nor does it promote laziness. It largely deals with circumstances that we have no control over. <coughs> there is nothing wrong with seeking a better job for the future. But for today, be thankful and content with the job you have. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians seven twenty one, Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although, if you can gain your freedom, do so. And here Paul balances contentment with one's present situation with ambition to change, if possible. And Paul himself was never content with the depth of his relationship with Christ, but always wanted to go deeper. In the same letter he wrote, I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Again, pressing on doesn't sound much like contentment. What Paul is stressing, though, is his desire to do his absolute very best, to become more Christ-like every day. Each day, Paul pressed on in his decisions, in his challenges, in his conflicts, in his sufferings, in his celebrations, to be more Christ-like by exhibiting an attitude of gratitude. Trusting in the sovereign plans and almighty God concerning his external circumstances and resting in the hope of future fulfillment of promises of God. When he did that, he found contentment. 
Some circumstances changed, some didn't. Yet he could sing while chained in a dungeon, writing inspiring letters while in prison, calling believers to rejoice always. And he took in stride any catastrophe that befell him with joy and contentment. So how content are you? We live in a society that stokes the flame of our discontent every single day. In nearly every commercial and advertisement that you see, it seeks to make you discontent with your car, with your toothpaste, all right, with, with your deodorant that you use. They parade the rich and the famous to tap into our discontent with what God has given us. One way to combat this onslaught of covetousness is the daily, to daily remind ourselves of what God has given to us, both spiritually and materially. Last month, September 21st, you may not have known this, was World Gratitude Day. I was reading an article about how businesses would benefit from showing more gratitude to their employees. And everybody who works said, Amen. I read this statement. While strategic recognition requires effective planning to be successful, it ties back to the simple premise that showing gratitude towards others builds connection. So I thought, if showing gratitude builds connection with others, Certainly, it will build connection with God if we are grateful. Many people keep a gratitude journal in which they record the blessings of common grace that comes across their path every day. Are you thankful today? Are you grateful to God for what you have? You know, people thank God that they woke up today. You know, nearly a quarter of a million people did not. Be thankful that there's food on the table and clean water from your faucet. Approximately 842 million people suffer from hunger worldwide. 771 lack access to safe water, and every two minutes, a child dies from water-related disease. Think about that next time you turn the tap on. Count your blessings. That you have a spouse to kiss. And I'm so happy for my wife. For 53 years, I have found contentment, being blessed by God. Maybe it's that, that, say thanks to God for the pet that you have. Maybe it's the fragrant flowers that wave in the wind. Maybe a beautiful symphony. Maybe the hugs of kids or grandkids. Are you thankful? Many people don't know that. When we take time to reflect on all God's blessings, we begin to feel contentment growing in our souls. Folks, we are the richest of peoples in the world, both spiritually and materially. We are in that tiny top of the triangle in the world, whether we know it or not. And we need to stop looking at what we don't have and perhaps glance backward and say, look at all that I do have. Thanks be to God. And perhaps you should be very grateful for not winning the lottery. For God may be protecting yourself from yourself. Hebrews 13.5 states, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, 
Never will I leave you, nor will I forsake you. When we set our hearts on something other than God, we are saying God is not enough. Then we echo the words often repeated in Ecclesiastes, this too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Randy Alcorn reminds us, it shouldn't take a winning jackpot for all of us to discover that money of any amount won't bring us lasting happiness. Rather, Psalm 107.9 states, God satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Find your contentment in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do rejoice with you and thank you, Lord, for the countless blessings you have given to us. And Lord, save us from ingratitude. Help us to be thankful every day for Jesus Christ, our Savior, and the rich salvation that we have in him. And that it is eternal and it is guaranteed. And we look forward to the day, Lord, when you call us home. And Lord, I pray here today that if there's anyone who has never fully made a commitment to Christ. I pray that your spirit would work in their heart today. Move them, Lord. Draw them to the cross that they may claim Christ as Savior. Give them a heart to believe. We'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.